Listener Production. Hello, listeners. Welcome back. It's Just the Jake again this week. And once more, I'll be prancing into the Just the Gist archives to revisit one of our classic episodes and give you a few updates on a story that is some way historically significant at the moment and is going to be in the headlines again soon so that then you're all up to date on the newest info and you're ready for those upcoming dinner convos. As I'm certain you all know, Rosie's taking some time off to get some mental health treatment as an inpatient for a few weeks. And I want to send a big, big thank you to all of you for the flood of support and love that you've been sending her and sending us. It's meant a lot to Rosie and obviously it means a lot to me as well. So huge thanks for that. As you probably also know, it's been surprisingly difficult for her to find a clinic that has decent facilities and solid treatment plans. And that's despite the fact that she's got really comprehensive private health insurance and the whole thing's been incredibly frustrating and quite worrying. Um, She put up a post this week about what she's experienced and I'll leave it to her to share as much or as little about her experiences as she wants to. But I will just say that it's been pretty upsetting as her friend to see over the last few weeks how hard it's been for her to get good quality help, especially in a major city like Melbourne. And it's just been really messed up that it's been so difficult so far and it breaks my heart when I think of all the people who have been in similar or worse situations than Rosie's and they haven't been able to find a solution but the good news here is Caleb has really been the knight in shining armor of this story and he's pressed daily to help get Rosie into a better facility and they have found a place it looks great it looks like she's going to get really good helpful care. She's moving in there this week. So yes, we can all rest assured Jisners, our girl is finally going to get the help that she's been seeking and she'll be back with us pretty soon. So the story that we're revisiting this week is the Gypsy Rose and Dee Dee Blanchard saga. And this is the first episode that we recorded back in the very beginning of 2020. That's why you'll hear Rosie comment at the end of the episode that it's going to be a really good year. It's absolutely worth listening to, even if you've heard it before. I'd forgotten so many of the details of what went down and it is a cracker of a story. I decided to go with this one right now for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it's historically significant because Gypsy Blanchard's first parole hearing is coming up in the next few months and it's looking like she could be a free woman a few years earlier than we'd expected. So this will help get you ready for when you start seeing more about her in the news fairly soon. And it'll also help you understand why there are a group of people who are fighting fairly hard to have Gypsy placed in a psychiatric care facility rather than just being set free. The other reason why it felt kind of relevant is because the director of the definitive documentary about Gypsy Rose and Dee Dee called Mommy Dead and Dearest is Erin Lee Carr. And she released another documentary that got lips a flapping this week called Britney versus Spears. That documentary has garnered a lot of attention and that's in amongst this enormous swirl of developments in the Free Britney universe. And I feel like we should probably have a little chat about how huge this week has been and everything that's gone on. Now, just imagine Rosie singing the breaking news theme song here. I'm certainly not going to do it myself. 
gosh, I really wish Rosie was here with me to do this. There's so much to unpack and so many things to discuss and she would do a far better job than I ever could, but I'll try my best. The biggest headline is that Jamie has been suspended as the conservator of Brittany's estate. Finally, hallelujah, praise Moira. I want to start by explaining why I think it's a good thing that the conservatorship was not ended this week, which is what Jamie was actually pushing for. A few weeks ago, we were all pretty shocked to learn that Jamie Spears had suddenly petitioned the court to end Britney's conservatorship altogether. And Rosie and I were speculating at the time that he was probably trying to do some damage control to protect his image and probably trying to get himself some kind of deal and avoid being investigated and prosecuted for, let's say, all of his alleged criminal behavior. Well, turns out Jamie wanted the conservatorship to just be abruptly shut down because if that happened, all of the records of his conversations and his dealings with the lawyers involved in the conservatorship over the last 13 years would all remain confidential. All the documents would remain sealed. No one would ever see them because they would remain covered by client attorney privileges. But if the conservatorship continued and Jamie was kicked out and replaced, that new conservator would have access to all the documents, all the transcripts of conversations, all the receipts, all the proof of the dodgy shit Jamie and his accomplices have allegedly been doing over the course of Britney's conservatorship. And that evidence could potentially be used to prosecute anyone who's broken the law. So Jamie was being more strategic than we even realised, but Britney's lawyer, Matthew Rosengard, he's smarter than all of us. He could see exactly what Jamie was trying to do. And he was like, whoa, slow this right down. He went in to fight for the conservatorship to continue for another few months, but to boot Jamie out and replace him with a neutral, trustworthy professional. And then shut the whole machine down bit by bit between now and November, once they'd gathered all the evidence that they needed access to. And yes, this morning, those of us in Australia woke up to the very, very good news that Jamie has been suspended from the conservatorship. He fought really hard, but he lost and the world is celebrating. The judge said the current situation is untenable. It reflects a toxic environment which requires the suspension of James Spears. No shit, judge. What took you so long? So a certified public accountant is taking over. His name is John Zabel, and he will immediately have access to a goldmine of potentially explosive evidence. He'll be going through all of it with a team of forensic accountants. What they find may or may not prove a lot of the allegations that were made in the three documentaries that we saw this week. And yes, I think we should talk briefly about each of those docos. There was one made by CNN, one made by the New York Times, and there was the one that I already mentioned on Netflix. And I could honestly spend hours talking about each of them, but of course it's just the gist. So I'll give you the headlines from each of them and then Rosie and I'll probably end up circling back and discussing them at length at a future date. We'll start off by talking about the CNN documentary, Toxic, Britney's Battle for Freedom. Now, this one mostly just rehashed stories that we already knew about Justin and K-Fed and driving with her baby on her lap and paparazzi and head shaving all the way up to Britney's June 23rd court appearance. 
There's not really a lot that's new in there. They interview Rosie O'Donnell about how impossible it was to contact Britney because Britney was kept so isolated from all of her friends. They also interview Misha Barton about how terrifying and confusing it was for her to be placed under a 5150 psychiatric hold and involuntarily detained for 72 hours, which happened to her and also to Britney when they were really unwell. They spend a bit of time interviewing Ronan Farrow and he co-wrote that explosive article for the New Yorker back in July, the one that revealed Britney had called 911 the day before her appearance in court to report herself as a victim of conservatorship abuse. And Ronan Farrow reiterates that Britney firmly believes it was the business manager that Jamie hired, Lou Taylor, who encouraged Jamie to start the conservatorship in the first place and that she's been pulling the strings with him ever since and that she's just as guilty as Jamie is, which we've heard a bit about already on the Toxic podcast by the Britney's Graham gals. They also interview a guy called Dan George. He was the tour manager for Britney's Circus Tour. He brings up for the first time there that I'm aware of that Britney's phone was always really closely monitored and he explicitly says that everyone was told on her team that they would be fired immediately if they ever mentioned the conservatorship. He also talks about the fact that Britney had no say in who she was allowed to see and spend time with. And a quote from him that is really tragic is that Britney was treated more as an object than a human. So this was pretty much all stuff that we already knew. And the overarching message of the documentary is once again, that there needs to be some major changes made to the conservatorship laws in America and especially in California. I probably wouldn't have even spoken about this documentary apart from the fact that it appears that Britney watched a little bit of this documentary and then posted something pretty sarcastic about it on her Instagram, basically calling the filmmakers lazy. She wasn't happy about it, and that's if it was actually her posting. And I have to agree with her. If the bits that she saw were the old footage of her being wheeled out of her home on a gurney that she was strapped to looking terrified or of her shaving her head. I can understand why she'd be annoyed that they're still using that footage to get ratings and to make money because that felt pretty gross to me as well. Then there was controlling Britney Spears and this was made by the New York Times as a follow-up to Framing Britney Spears, made by the same people. As the name suggests, it focuses on how Britney has been manipulated and she's been silenced and used and bullied, all to make a small group of people very wealthy. And it was very chilling to watch. The big takeaway really was that Britney's been living in fear for 13 years and she's lived as a prisoner who has been punished every day because she had a mental breakdown in 2007. I have seen the full documentary. At the moment, it's a little bit difficult to access if you're outside America, but I believe it's going to be released worldwide soon. Apparently, it's going to be on Channel 9 in Australia on Monday. The most memorable information comes really from the three people who decided to come forward and break their non-disclosure agreements that they had signed when they were working for Britney and working for the conservatorship. They provide some insight into what was going on behind the scenes and some of it's pretty explosive. There's Felicia. She's the diamond encrusted treasure angel of a woman who we heard from in Framing Britney Spears. She was the family friend who became Britney's assistant and was with her for many years and was a great friend of Britney's. 
Then there's Tish. She was the head of wardrobe for Britney for a fair amount of time. And there's also a guy called Alex Vlasov. He was the executive assistant to one of the managers at the security company, Black Box, who looked after Britney and he worked there for nine years and he saw some stuff. It was a pretty big deal for these people to speak out because there could be some serious consequences for them and for their careers. But Tish really said it best when she said she felt she needed to tell the world about what was going on and that this was really high stakes stuff because it's about a human life that's being tortured. We'll start off with what Alex had to say because what he revealed is probably the biggest deal. He claims that Britney's phone was monitored without her knowledge and that her room was bugged without her knowledge. According to him, when Britney was finally allowed to have an iPhone, Robin Greenhill, who was another shifty member of Britney's management team, arranged to have an iPad set up with the same Apple ID and iCloud as Britney's phone. So then they could monitor everything she did with that phone, the calls, the texts, the internet searches, the photos, everything that she did, they would be able to see on the iPad that mirrored her phone, which is a massive breach of privacy and is totally illegal if Britney didn't know about it. But of course, Jamie claims that Britney and the court approved them to do this, which strikes me as a lie because they have evidence of Jamie denying that he had any access to Britney's phone whatsoever in writing. Then there's the bug that they allegedly placed in Britney's bedroom. This has grabbed headlines around the world in the last few days. They planted that recording device in the days leading up to her meeting with a court investigator. Alex knows about this because he says that his boss, Idan Yimini, handed him the recording device that they'd retrieved from Britney's room, as well as a USB with all of the recordings on it. And Idan told Alex to destroy it because it was sensitive and because no one could ever know about it. Clearly, Idan knew what they were doing was highly illegal and wanted it covered up. There was 180 hours of recorded conversations on that USB between Brittany and her boyfriend and her underage sons. None of those people gave their consent to be recorded and Alex knew that this was 100% against the law and he didn't want to be complicit so he made a copy for himself Why he didn't hand it over to the police immediately, I don't know. I can only assume that he was concerned about losing his job. The whole thing there, if it's true, it's disgusting, it's illegal. The judge and the police have been made aware of it and yes, it is being investigated and I'm sure we'll find out the truth of the matter sometime soon. Jamie, in the meantime has just continued to deny that he did anything wrong or did anything illegal or did anything that Brittany and the court didn't know about and approve ahead of time. And then the things that Tish and Felicia describe witnessing, they really add up to paint a picture of how Brittany was kept under the thumb through threats to take away access to her sons anytime she pushed back on the rules and constant petty refusals to some very reasonable requests, like just having sushi for dinner. They would tell her no when she wanted things, just as a way of asserting their dominance. And then also through keeping her away from her friends and her support network so that she felt totally isolated and alone and became more and more docile. All of that is heartbreaking to hear about, especially when Felicia describes the way Jamie tried to keep her away from Brittany by telling her that Brittany never wanted to see her again. 
And it's also pretty rough when Tish explains that she only stayed on working with Brittany, working for the conservatorship, just so that she'd know that there would be at least one person in Brittany's life who genuinely cared for her and supported her. I won't be surprised if a lot of you shed a lot of tears when you watch that one. Then on Tuesday, we got to see Britney versus Spears, the one that I mentioned was directed by Erin Lee Carr. She spent the last two and a half years working on this and the team who worked on it were planning to release it much earlier this year, but then framing Britney Spears dropped. And when they saw it, they sort of went, okay, the New York Times has beaten us to the punch. We need to go and rework our documentary. So Netflix gave them an extension and they went away and turned their documentary into something that was different enough from framing Britney Spears. The reviews of this one have been pretty mixed. I've seen quite a lot of criticism calling it schlocky and tasteless and voyeuristic and also calling it a vanity project because Erin Lee Carr features in the film so much, which I will say is often a bit of a red flag for me. Whenever a documentarian makes themselves the star of the show, I sort of squint at it a little bit. I think the reason that this documentary is getting so much criticism for the fact that, you know, it delves into the worst times in Britney's life, which is what all of the documentaries do, is because it's Netflix and because Netflix has such a big platform and such an enormous reach. That's probably a big part of why it's getting so much scrutiny. Anyway, that aside, this documentary, for better or worse, for the first time gives us the chance to hear from Sam Lutfi. He's the guy that says he was Britney's former manager and he's the one that is the alleged predator that Jamie Spears was trying to, inverted commas, protect Britney from when he sought the conservatorship to begin with. And we also hear from, for the first time, Adnan Ghalib, the paparazzo who became Britney's boyfriend briefly there. Both those men kind of get the chance to clear their names, which whatever, that doesn't really matter. They then go on to tell us stuff that we already know really, which is that the conservatorship is shifty and that Brittany has wanted out. As proof, they provide text messages and also a pretty grim story. The fact that they shared the text messages between Adnan and Brittany, private messages without her knowledge or consent, just to prove she didn't want to be in the conservatorship, that I found kind of off-putting. But anyway, the story that Adnan and Sam Lufti tell about trying to help Brittany submit a request to get rid of Sam Ingham, her court-appointed lawyer, so she could choose her own attorney, that's a pretty grim story. So they had drafted this document for her and then they got a reporter from Rolling Stone magazine whom Brittany trusted and who, by the way, is also one of the filmmakers for Britney versus Spears. They got her to smuggle the document into the bathroom at a hotel where Britney was staying so that Britney could then sneak off, follow the reporter into the bathroom, sign the document in secret away from her prison guards. Like I said, very bleak that that was the lengths that they were going to to try to help her get legal assistance. It didn't work anyway because the conservatorship just made a claim that Brittany wasn't in a sound enough state of mind to make any such request to get her own lawyer. And for good measure, then they just went ahead and said that the signature was probably forged anyway. 
One of the ickiest things in this documentary for me is when one of the filmmakers from the doco about Britney's comeback in 2008 called For the Record, a guy who says that he became a friend of Britney's, he shares a handwritten letter that Britney had asked him to please make public. The reason she wanted him to do that was so that she could help set the record straight about how she was being used and the truth about the conservatorship and how much money she was being forced to give to her family and what really happened that led to her breakdown in the first place. And he kept a copy of that letter. As far as I can tell, he never shared it with anyone until now and it just doesn't sit well with me at all. I get that he might have been fearful of what the conservatorship would do to him or possible legal repercussions because they, the conservatorship, found out about the letter somehow. It felt, it still just felt gross that she'd asked him for help when she was desperate. He claims he was her friend and he did nothing for well over a decade. And then he came forward at the last minute to a documentarian. With a document that feels like it should have been shown to Britney's judge years ago, not just televised later on and just in time for the conservatorship to end. I have no doubt that most of you will watch Britney vs. Spears if you haven't already, so I really don't need to go into much more detail, but I will just say... There's an interview with a geriatric, and don't we just love that word, geriatric psychiatrist who's believed to be the one who diagnosed Brittany with dementia and who was never challenged on that diagnosis, and he seems shady as hell. There's also a thorough breakdown of what Britney's earned over the years and then who's taken a slice of the pie, particularly Lou Taylor, Jamie Spears, and the rest of the Spears family. And as Wendy Williams said death to all of them. While we're speaking of money, I really think Britney's fiance, Sam, who, by the way, Tish says he's a lovely and humble and trustworthy man. He made a really good point when he tweeted that he hopes all these documentarians and streaming platforms and producers are planning to donate their profits to help fight injustice rather than just pocketing the cash that they make off Britney's pain. He also posted that he really hopes that credit is given to the real heroes here, the Free Britney movement, who've worked so hard for so long to save what's left of Britney's life, and I couldn't agree with him more. So to wrap up, the happy news is on November 12th, there will be a hearing where the decision is going to be made to end the conservatorship completely. November 12th will be hashtag Britney's Free Day. That'll be 10 days before her 40th birthday, which, as I predicted in my Instagram post, will be celebrated with our divine and eternal Lord and Saviour, Cher. Okay, so we're up to speed on Britney. Let's go back to the story of Gypsy Rose and Dee Dee Blanchard, an episode we recorded when Rosie was high on OxyContin for medical purposes, not just for kicks. It is a dark one, but it's fun to listen to. Have a jisson, enjoy, and I'll see you at the end with some updates on Gypsy and her ex-boyfriend, Nicholas. Dee Dee and Gypsy Rose Blanchard. I can't believe you haven't heard of this. I'm sure once I start telling you the details, you'll know. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So a few weeks ago, Patricia Arquette won a Golden Globe for playing Dee Dee in Mm. the TV series based on it called The Act. Mm. There was also a documentary that came out uh, in 2017 called Mummy Dead and Dearest, 
which is how a lot of people know about the story. Uh-huh. Um, so like those are the main things that put this in the news, but it's also just such a nutso story. It was already in the news. Like I knew about it before the doc. I was waiting for the documentary to come out. Mm. So it was already in the news, but are you ready for this? Did you watch the TV show as well? Of course. Recommend? Yes. Okay. Highly recommend. It's called The Act. The Act. Okay. It's on um, HBO. So you, I watch it on Foxtel now, that app or whatever it's called. Okay. Doke. So in 2015, the body of Dee Dee Blanchard is found brutally murdered in her bed. She'd been stabbed a bunch of times and her body had been there for a few days. And the reason the police found her is because she has a daughter called Gypsy Rose. Mm. And um, that day some weird statuses went up on Gypsy's Facebook. The first one said, the bitch is dead. And the second one said, get ready to bleep this. I effing slashed that fat pig and raped her sweet, innocent daughter. Her scream was so effing loud, lol. So (gasps) these two statuses went up on Gypsy Rose's Facebook. And this weirded people out and worried people, not just because it's incredibly worrying, offensive thing to see on someone's Facebook, but also because Gypsy was significantly disabled. So Dee Dee was her full-time carer because physically Gypsy was in a wheelchair. She had muscular dystrophy. She'd had leukemia. She was like 14 years old, but she had the mental capacity of a five-year-old. So when those statuses went up, people freaked out. And then when Dee Dee was found dead and Gypsy wasn't there, they assumed she'd been taken. Like, Uh and her wheelchair was still in the house and all her medications were in the house. So people were panicking that she'd been murdered or someone had taken her. Wherever she was, she wasn't okay because she couldn't survive long without the things that were in her home. The next day, though, police found Gypsy Rose and she was in another state where she had travelled with her boyfriend, Nicholas Godajon. Mm. She was wearing a blonde Disney princess wig. She wasn't sick. She could walk. She wasn't 14. She was almost 25. And she and Goda John had killed Dee Dee. <laughs> no so, one can hear how shocked my face looks. Jacob's face is like, <laughs> I just fed you a lot of information in like two minutes. Okay. And so it comes out over the next few months that Dee Dee had Munchausen's by proxy and had oh. essentially been abusing Gypsy and forcing her to pretend she was sick her entire life. Did you say she was her mother? Dee Dee's her mother. Dee Dee's her mother. So she's been poisoning her daughter and lying about her age to make it seem like the daughter has muscular dystrophy. I'm about to ah. get into the details with you. Oh. <laughs> What okay. rings a bell is this is eerily similar to the plot line in The Politician. Yes, they say that The Politician is modelled after this story. Okay, cool. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So The Politician is a new show by Ryan Murphy um, that has a daughter and a... There, that was... He said that was based on this. Got it. Yeah. So Gypsy is born in 1991 to Dee Dee and Dee's husband Rod Blanchard. And pretty much straight away, Dee Dee is insisting that there's stuff wrong with Gypsy. So at about three months old, um, she becomes convinced that Gypsy has sleep apnea. So she says that Gypsy keeps stopping breathing in her sleep. Mm. Um, She keeps taking her to the ER and the doctors keep saying that she's fine, but she keeps insisting and insisting and going to different doctors. And eventually she finds one that says, yes, okay. 
and gives her a sleep apnea machine mm-hmm. for um, Gypsy to use during the night. And we know about this stuff from Gypsy's dad, Rod. So Dee Dee was 24 when Gypsy was born and Rod was only 17. So he oh. was a kid. Yeah. And um, and he says now, when they interview him now, like he didn't really know what was going on mm. and he had this older wife who told him that their baby was sick. So he was like, okay, like mm. he had no reason not to believe it. Um, and he said after the sleep apnea thing, Dee Dee was constantly taking her to the hospital and she seemed to just get sicker and sicker and sicker. So first, you know, it came out that she had muscular dystrophy and then she got leukemia and then she had hearing problems and then she had vision problems and then she needed to be fed through a, food, a tube in her stomach. Um, and then it came out that she couldn't walk. So she needed a wheelchair and Rod was kind of like, why does she have all these random, widely ranging different things? Mm. And Dee Dee just said to him, she has a chromosome disorder that causes lots of different problems and she probably won't live past being a teenager. And so, you know, he's young and he's just like, oh, okay. But he does start to ask questions as Dee Dee gets a few years older because, like, you know, she's a toddler and occasionally she will just get up and run around because she wants to mm. and they'll be like, look, she's running. And Dee Dee will be like, no, sometimes her muscles, are, but anyway, she, she's back in the chair. You know mm. what I mean? It just all seemed a bit dodge. Uh-huh. So as soon as he started asking questions and his family started asking questions, Dee Dee takes off with Gypsy. Mm. They moved to New Orleans and um, they seem to get by um, on child support from him, so he keeps sending money. He seems like a really decent man um, who was just sort of in over his head and thought he had this sick daughter and just wanted to do what he could. Um, they also get a lot of public assistance and donations because Gypsy is so sick and has all these disorders and illnesses. Um, she's homeschooled and basically spends 24 hours a day with her mother, um, just going to hospital, getting surgeries getting procedures. How are they convincing the doctors to do these surgeries and this procedures? This is the thing. Like, it's really hard to explain. And it's not even really clear. Like, I don't have a clear answer for you. The people who do this, and I'll say women because it's almost always women who have this disorder, Munchausen's by proxy, um, which is where you make your kids sick. Mm. Um, they're very good at fooling doctors. They'll go to different doctors They'll go to enough doctors until they get, like, one of them to look into something which then means, oh, okay, look, we can try them on this medication and then, you know, you just, they're good at it. Right. And back then also, because this was the late 90s, early 2000s, um, records were still, a lot of them were still handwritten, like charts and stuff, so. Easy to forge. Easy to forge, like, there was one doctor in this whole story um, who, um, when Gypsy and Dee Dee came to him much later, he was like, there is absolutely nothing wrong with her. If she had, you know, atrophy in her leg muscles, she like her, cause her legs were fine. Like she could walk. And so like, he's, he was like, her legs would be completely wasted away if she hadn't walked her entire life. And he like did scans on her brain and he did all this stuff. He was like, she's fine. He wrote in the file, um, I think this is a case of Munchausen's by proxy, um, but he never called anyone. He never did anything. He just put it in the file. And as soon as Dee Dee saw that he had put that in the file, she just never went back to him again. Right. So nobody ever really, I think people suspected, but 
It's it's very, I knew you were going to ask me that question and there's no clear answers. Sounds like she was just very good at fooling people and the system. And also it got to the point where Gypsy was actually getting sick because she was given so many medications. Like most of her teeth fell out because of all these medications she was on. Like she did actually have severe vision problems because of all the medications she was on because she was on medications she didn't need. So they were actually making her sick in other ways. So it's just messed up. So I know. Cray cray. So in 2005, Hurricane Katrina happens. Uh Uh-huh. Dee Dee and Gypsy are left homeless by it, which a lot of people around there were. And because Gypsy is so sick, um, they qualify for Habitat for Humanity, build them a house that they give to them. So they now own a house. It's in Missouri. So it's far away. And also it's the perfect excuse for why they have no records now. So because she says Hurricane Katrina... They lost all their Everything records. got washed away. So she gets a new birth certificate that completely changes Gypsy's age. Um, <laughs> she also now can, like, tell doctors in Missouri, yes, Gypsy has this, she has this, she has this, she has this. So she basically starts medical records from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was actually, like, a turning point for them. There was no paper trail. They had a house they didn't have to pay for. Um And looking at Gypsy at this point, I mean, 2005, if she was born in 91, that makes her 14. Yeah. I think she forged the birth certificate to say at this point she was like six or seven. And she does look, she's incredibly thin and stunted. Yeah. She's only only ever been fed through a tube in her stomach. Um, Dee Dee keeps her head shaved. She tells her that she has cancer and her hair is going to fall out anyway. So she shaves her head and she dresses her like a toddler. So she's always wearing like little like mini mouse tracksuits and she's always got like Disney crowns on and she's always got little tutus on and um, she only lets her watch Disney and play with toys. And I mean, Gypsy has a normal brain. Like Mm. she isn't, her mother insists that she's intellectually disabled, but she's not. But still she is spending 24 hours a day her entire life with someone who treats her like a child. So she does kind of act like one. Um, She doesn't know any different. Um, And she also talks like a little kid. It's really bizarre. One of the most notable things about her, because there's a lot of footage of her when she was young um, um, because, you know, they would send it away to like cancer charities and stuff to get money and everything. And and she kind of, wait, how can I do it? She kind of talks like this. I just want to thank you so much. My mommy used to always show me this little house and a little snow globe. And she said, one day this will come true. And now look, you built us that house. So it just shows if you dream enough and you hope enough, dreams really do come true. Like that's literally how she talks. <laughs> and it's bizarre to me that people believe that because to me that sounds like an older person trying to talk like a younger person. Like the vocabulary is too... Because that's how she talks and says it. Yeah, if we can get an audio clip for me to hear, oh, that would be incredible. Hold on. Hey, that was painful to listen to, and yes, that's very much shot. sounded like an older I show, person I talking like a I took a screenshot of this documentary. So in this photo, she's 22 years old. And she's the one on the right, yes. Well, she's not the one dressed <laughs> as Santa, Jacob. <laughs> 
She's 22 there. Yes. Oh, God. And people thought she was about 10. Oh. Yeah. Yikes. So. You're more comfortable doing her voice than doing my voice, though. (laughs) (laughs) I can go high. (laughs) You know I can go high. (laughs) Yeah, so looking at her at this point, she does, she looks tiny. She seems young. She believes she is young. She doesn't really know how old she is. But she is starting to have questions and um, Dee Dee becomes very abusive towards her. So it's not just the Munchausens by proxy, it's actual physical and emotional and verbal abuse. Like Because at this point, Gypsy being sick and young and cute is what their lives depend on. Mm-hmm. So around this time, because the internet's a thing, Dee Dee starts... Um, you know, getting money off like the Make-A-Wish Foundation and like all these different kind of charities and um, uh, they go on like free Disney cruises and they go on free trips and they get given a free car and they get given free groceries. People send them money. Um, Gypsy is constantly like the main attraction at charity events. So she'll get up at charity events and like sing a little song in her wheelchair and they get interviewed by the news all the time. Um, So it's become quite lucrative for them, but it all depends on Gypsy being young and cute and really sick. Um, and Gypsy at this time um, was a teenager and so she starts staying up at night and going on her mum's laptop, which she says now she could only do because her mum would take a bunch of Valium before she went to sleep. So when her mum went to sleep, she'd be completely knocked out. Mm-hmm. So at night times, Gypsy says she had the house to herself. So she started going on the internet or she would also walk around. So at nighttime she would walk around and she would also sneak to the kitchen and eat like chocolate and stuff. So at this point she knew she could eat, she knew she could walk and she knew that she probably was older than she thought she was, but she didn't really know what was happening. She said she still believed she had cancer, but she didn't really understand. So she starts going on the internet at night times. And she starts learning about the world. And um, she would ask her mum questions, but this is when her mum started to abuse her to keep her in line. So her mum started Mm -hmm. beating her. They would do this thing like where whenever they were out in public or doing a news interview or whatever, her mum was always holding her hand. And if she said the wrong thing or sounded too smart or slipped up, her mum would squeeze her hand really tight and she would know immediately to stop talking. And there's footage where you see this happening. Oh, yeah. wow. And then she said after times like that, they would go home and her mum would handcuff her to the bed. And sometimes she'd be handcuffed to the bed for days at a time as punishment for getting something wrong. Um, wow. Yeah, it's really messed up, right? So there was this transition period where Gypsy was getting older, mm. starting to suspect things. But this is when Dee Dee started abusing her to keep her in line. Um, But Gypsy desperately wanted to get out. And also, she's a teenager. And you know what happens when you're a teenager? You want to start rubbing your special place on other people's special places. (laughs) So (laughs) you can't stop teenage sexuality. You can dress a teenager up as a toddler for as long as you want, but they're going to hit puberty, you know what I mean? And so she starts going online at night and she starts going on like dating sites and she dreams about escaping. She wants to escape mainly because she wants a boyfriend. She's really desperate for a boyfriend Uh and she watches all these Disney movies and so she imagines finding like a Disney prince, a Prince Charming. 
And at one point she meets someone on a dating site and catches a taxi to his house in the middle of the night wearing one of her Disney princess wigs. And her mum wakes up, looks on the laptop, figures out where she is, goes to the house, um, drags her out and shows the guy her fake birth certificate that says she's 12 years old. And he freaks out because mm. he's like, I thought I was with a, tw-, like she told me yeah. she was 20 or whatever. And so yeah. he's like, oh my God. And so, um, and after that night, her mum smashes the laptop with a hammer, tells her if she does it again, she'll smash her fingers and handcuffs her to the bed for two weeks. And is there proof of that? Of what? That she handcuffed her to the bed for two weeks or it's just... Just what she says. Gypsy's testimony. Yes. Okay. It's uh-huh. just what she says. Can I ask? Yes. How sceptical were you that this was true? We'll get into that. Okay. Yeah, we'll get into that. Because you've got someone who's a proven liar, is quite adept at lying, Mm -hmm. who's got quite a tale to tell, and it seems like we're only hearing her side of the story. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in around 2014, so that would put Gypsy at 25, Three. Mm-hmm. Although everyone at this point thinks she's about 12. Gypsy meets a guy online called Nicholas, Nicholas Godajon. They start chatting and things get pretty sexual pretty quickly. And he, it comes out later, has an IQ below 70. So he's, you know, intellectually disabled. Uh-huh. Technically. He also has a history of perverted sexual stuff. So he once got arrested for sitting in a McDonald's for eight hours watching porn on his laptop and masturbating. (laughs) So he's... (laughs) How many hours? Eight. (laughs) In a McDonald's? Yeah. Um, Uh, yeah. Was it a really remote McDonald's? uh, Look, I'm giving you just the gist. So (laughs) you can look into it if you feel the need. Um, But that's it. I I just put a note here that I do worry about with all the messed up porn we have now these days. I worry about people who intellectually are not very, who don't have the capacity to watch things like that. And I mean, if if even the geniuses among us watch messed up porn and end up having messed up sexual ideas. Imagine how that would affect someone who has the thinking capacity of like a, a child. Like how it's like, cause apparently he has some very messed up ideas about sex and sexually he's very weird and he's gotten obsessed with porn that he's seen and like, you know, how mm. do, how do you, how do that's a whole other yeah. conversation, I mean, oh, but it's messed up. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Good point. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like the porn generation oh. is really going <laughs> to I didn't even see. I didn't even see porn until I was like, I don't know, maybe 21 or 22. Like, because we didn't have it. Like we had, I remember finding like some of my mum's boyfriend's like magazines, but mm. video porn I never saw because we didn't have the internet. Yeah. We're the tail end of millennial. We're like. We had the our imaginations. Yes. And you were just flicking yourself off to Rugrats. We had that pool scene in Wild Things. Oh, yeah. Like, what else did that we have? That was steamy. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. Mm-hmm. Anyway. And Kevin Bacon. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, thanks. Um, so, yeah, he's, he's a bit sus. 
Pretty much straight away, um, he starts getting Gypsy to do uh, act out a lot of BDSM fantasies with him. All online, they don't. They live in different states, right? Um, and is he the sub or the dom? He's the dom. So he has a lot of um, fantasies about uh, like rape fantasies, sexual violence fantasies. Mm-hmm. He, yeah, he basically starts feeding her all this stuff, and she, although intellectually is probably more advanced than him. She's incredibly naive. Mm. Like she's grown up completely sheltered, has no, she's never had a boyfriend, has no idea about sex stuff. And so she just says now that she kind of just went along with it and thought that that was sexy. And he would make her put on, she has like, she has pretty much a Disney wig for every Disney princess. So he would make her put on all these different wigs. Oh, so he's seeing her on camera. Yeah, they're chatting on camera. And is she trying to present as an able-bodied person? Oh yeah, she completely acts normal, like to him. Okay. Yeah. Right. She tells him, like, um, she's got a shaved head because she's, like, been sick in the past, but she walks and does everything on camera in front of him. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they start getting pretty intense in their online relationship and they're doing sex stuff, like, every night on video chat, mm-hmm. most of it involving him abusing her in some kind of sexual way. Um, they organized to meet at the movies after about like a year. So she knows that her mum will never let her have a boyfriend and she can't say that she's met someone online because she's not meant to be on the internet. So they make this plan where he's going to get like the Greyhound bus. I think it takes like eight hours or something to her state and her and her mum are going to go to the movies and he's going to be at the movies and they're just going to like bump into each other at the movies. And then she can tell her mum like, oh, you know, it's that guy we met at the movies that day. And, mm-hmm. you know, this, they have this weird plan. But the plan is her and her mum are going to the opening day of the live-action Cinderella. Do you remember that um, a few years ago? Oh, with Hermione. Yeah. No, yeah. that was Beauty and the Beast. Oh. Anyway. Okay. Like that, but Cinderella. Right. So she's dressed as Cinderella. Her mum's pushing her in the wheelchair. They go to the first screening on the day it comes out so it's like 10 a.m mm. so it's just the two of them in the cinema and this weird 21 year old kid mm. boy and so her mom's <laughs> like he's creepy let's not sit near him yeah. and so then their plan to kind of bump into each other goes awry because yeah. her mom's like let's stay away from that weirdo watching cinderella at 10 a.m on a monday morning or whatever <laughs> and so halfway through the movie gypsy tells her mom she needs to go to the bathroom so Gypsy wheels herself out to the foyer, goes to the bathroom. He follows her in there and she loses her virginity to him in the bathroom at the movies. Um, she says <laughs> like now... Like a true Disney princess. I know. This, I feel sorry for her. She says now that when she met him in person, it wasn't the same as online and she felt like he was kind of creepy, but he was there and she thought like, you know, I'm finally we've been chatting online, so she just did it. And so then they do that. And she goes back to the theatre and then um, he goes home and that's kind of that. <laughs> I keep getting more and more horrified. Yes. I told you it's a doozy. Every chapter is just... So uh, the relationship after this gets even more intense, even more sexual, and eventually these violent fantasies turn into fantasies about killing her mother so they can run away together. And at some point, those fantasies start turning into actual planning. And this is where it gets murky because she insists that she just thought it was all online fantasy stuff like the other stuff. 
and he had, um, you know, forced the relationship into this point where she would do whatever he said and she didn't really understand how this fantasy stuff works so she just went along with it. And so she says that she never expected he would actually do it. But if you go, like, going back through their messages, she they were actually planning it. They made an actual plan. She didn't, it doesn't seem like she thought it was just talk. So like she sends him money for a bus ticket. He comes there Mm. in the middle of the night. She messages him when she knows Didi is asleep. He, she goes and locks herself in the bathroom. She's left the back door open for him. He Mm. comes in through the back door, kills Didi. Oh, how? Stabs her a bunch of times. They take a taxi to a motel together. They spend the night, like, having sex and filming each other on their phones, the footage of which is in this documentary. Like, they're giggling, they're having fun, they're, like, eating burgers and, like, having this uh, romantic night together in a motel. Oh, my God. Um, the next day they get a bus to his house, which is in another state, um, and she moves in with him and his parents. And she posts those statuses on Facebook because she said a couple of days later she started to feel really guilty about the idea of no one finding her mother's body. Mm. So she put those statuses up so people would go to the house and uh-huh. her mother's body would be found. And after the statuses went up, it does not take the police long to find them because at first they're like, oh, my God, where's Gypsy? So they check the IP address of, and then they just yep. go straight there. Mm. So they both get taken into custody for questioning. They're shocked when they get there and she's walking around and seems normal because what everyone had told them back at the house was that, you know. Mm. Um, When she's interviewed, she pretends like she didn't know her mum was dead. So there's this foot and she's such a bad actress. It's like quite funny. So (laughs) the, the detective is like, okay, so you know we're here. We brought you here because your mother has died. And we want to, and she goes, wait, 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 wait. What did you just say? Oh. And he's like, your mother. She's like, she's dead? And he's like, yes. And she's like, oh, my, I don't even, oh, my God. I don't even, like, she's just, she's really bad. She's, like, doing her best Disney version of uh-huh. what she thinks a princess would do when she found out her mother's been brutally murdered. Yeah. Um, and so the guy starts, you know, questioning her about it, and she keeps denying it, saying she doesn't know, she doesn't know, she doesn't know. And then he's like, can we have your phone? And she's like, oh, yeah, okay. Um, And he's like, we're going to check all your messages. And she goes, that's okay. And then he goes, you do know that we can read deleted ones. And she says, what? (laughs) (laughs) And so that's when you can see her freaking the F out. Um, Also, Nicholas Godijon in his interview room just confesses straight away. He just goes, yeah, I want you guys to know that I did stab Didi, but it's because Gypsy told me to and Gypsy said that she needed me to kill her because she was hurting her and um, I love her a lot and I just wanted to save her. So, yeah, I did that. And also, nonsensically, Nicholas Godijon, the knife that he used to stab Didi, mm. he put it in an envelope and mailed it to his house. from as a souvenir no because i think he thought that will get it away from the crime scene (laughs) (laughs) but then when the police arrested them at the house the envelope was there and they opened it and the knife was in it he'd addressed it to himself (laughs) he's not smart Oh, yeah. So they, he didn't, he could have thrown it in a river, could have, I mean, they literally caught a bus across states 
He could have thrown it anywhere, but he mailed it to himself in an envelope addressed to him at his house. It just feels like he wanted to get caught and make absolutely certain Uh, that the evidence was insurmountable. (laughs) Yes. So um, they get the knife. (laughs) So the next day police hold a press conference saying they found Gypsy and she's safe and everyone's Mm. like, oh, my God, thank God. But then the policeman's like, um, but also she's been arrested and she did it and she can walk and there's nothing wrong with her and this whole thing's messed up. And everyone's like, what? <laughs> and so then, <laughs> at her first court hearing, there's all these cameras there because the press conference was nuts. Like, And um, she walks into the court and she's just, she can walk. And everybody who's ever met her thinks she is a 12-year-old disabled girl and she's like 24 and she just walks into the room and she's fine. So yeah. it just messes with everyone's head. Um, they also, in that court hearing, uh, read a bunch of the messages which are, like, pretty sexual and pretty violent and very adult. Uh-huh. I use that in inverted commas. She looks mortified that they're reading that stuff out because she had this whole Disney princess victim thing and then it's, like, mm. all these really, like, there's stuff like, you know, I can't wait till you've done it and then we can F all night knowing that she's dead and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Like it's intense. Yeah. Um, and everyone who thought she was, you know, this little girl is like, what the F is going on? Mm. Like what is happening? But it also doesn't take long for the narrative to kind of flip and for people to actually start feeling sorry for her as she starts slowly revealing all the details of her life and what has happened to her and people start to have sympathy for her. So her dad comes and he's shocked. Like he thought she was, like her mum had basically kept her away from him, wouldn't let him see her, but he's been sending money and like getting updates on her health. And so he's he just can't believe it. And he brings his new wife and they hire her a lawyer and they start kind of like um, trying to take care of her as best as they can while she's in prison. Um, They get her like a psychiatrist. Um, And then basically they're held in prison. The schedule for the trials is that um, she's going to go to trial as soon as possible. He's like, go to John's having his own separate trial. But while she's in prison, like she starts thriving because um, they take the tube out of her stomach, so she's ah, eating proper food. Yeah. So she starts to look really healthy. Her hair grows for the first time in her life. Um, her she's teeth not... grow back. Pardon? Her teeth grow they back. Do, they fix really? her teeth. Yeah, her teeth ah. get fixed. Um, she um, doesn't have to wear the crazy bottle, uh, what do you call it? Glass bottle. Coke bottom, bottle. Coke bottle glasses. Mm. Like, um She's, you know, hanging around young women her own age. They've stopped all the medications that she didn't need to be taking. So she just starts looking like a regular 24-year-old woman. So it seems like prison's a really positive place for her. She even says now that she felt more free in prison than she ever did living with her mother. Um, In 2015, so that's a year after all this happens, she takes a plea deal and given her background and everything that she's been through and whatever, um, they give her a 10-year sentence, which she's currently serving, and she'll be eligible for parole in 2024. Mm -hmm. And go to John, I feel sorry for. He um, keeps trying to get off on different things, like his IQ and his mental health stuff and whatever. 
So his trial gets delayed, 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 delayed. Eventually he finally goes to trial in 2018. He gets found guilty and it gets life without the possibility of parole. So he's going to be in prison for the rest of his life. Oh. Yes. And that's kind of where it gets to a place where you were asking before, like, how much did she know and how culpable is she? And Uh, was he naive or was she naive? Like her family now. It's really interesting in the documentary, uh, Mummy Dead and Dearest, you can tell her dad loves her a lot and so does her stepmom. Um, but they also know that she has problems and her dad and the doctor that sees her, um, they say that she exhibits a lot of the same sociopathic manipulative behaviours as her mother, mm-hmm. but they don't blame her for it because... She learned from the best. She knows nothing else, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so that can kind of go some way to explaining possibly how she got, you know, how why Nicholas did what he did, but also... People say that Nicholas was a very sexually violent, messed up person on his own. So he was maybe just looking for an excuse to hurt someone. Um, I mean, I don't know. I think maybe it's a bit of both. It was just kind of the perfect storm, those two meeting each other. And yeah, what do you think? Do you believe her? I believe her. Like, I believe that all this happened. I do. Do you? Uh... I don't know. While you were looking down at your screen a lot of times, I think I was narrowing my eyes, sort of going, <laughs> mm, but if that's just her word that we've got to take for that. I think what the, what people don't, I believe it all happened. What people can't guarantee is how in on it she was. Mm. Like she got, she had to have gotten to an age where she knew it was a scam, no? Yeah. Like, and she was part of it. Yes. Maybe. But then other people say, no, she didn't. And she has ways to explain it. She's like, oh, I I knew I was 22 because I accidentally saw my age, my real age on a form once or, you know, I knew I could walk but I did think I had cancer or I, I thought I had this but I also knew I could eat chocolate. Like she sort of mm. has an answer for everything. Yes, which I guess lends itself again to that case of mm. she's got sociopathic tendencies and she's probably got a lot that she needs to deal with. Um, look, in so many ways, my heart breaks for her that she yeah. went through that experience um, and it feels like she probably also believes her own lies to really so. be true. And also to go through something like lies. that, you probably would get to a point where you become effing ruthless and you'll do whatever you can to survive. And yeah. I can see her doing that. Okay, so you're 100% on board that Gypsy is not fabricating or exaggerating. You think that she's telling the truth. I think everything that she says happened to her happened to her, but I'm not sure. I think she could be lying about how culpable she was and how much she actively participated as she got older. Mm -hmm. Because that was how her and her mum survived. They were basically grifters. She had so many perks coming her way. They did. As long as she played along. Yes. But then she wanted wanted that life, but without her mum, she wanted a boyfriend and she wanted to go out and do things. Yeah. I I don't know. Okay, so she's got, what, another eight years to serve? Uh, No, four. She gets out in 2024. Oh, Okay. Oh, and she's she's probably going to be set with media deals. Well, yeah, she already got engaged to someone in prison. <laughs> so her and Goda John broke up straight away when all mm-hmm. this happened. She was basically like, see ya, thanks for the stabbing. <laughs> um, 
uh, she got engaged to a guy through a pr- like a p- prison pen pal program. Yeah. Um, and it's actually been in the tabloids a few times. They've broken up and gotten back together a few times. So, like, she's kind of already in the tabloids. And wait, I'm just Googling a photo of her now so you can see. So, like, she's clearly, like, in prison. She's grown her hair and she's, like, does her makeup every day. And she kind of, you can tell that she's enjoying being a, a proper young woman. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. she's kind of enjoying it. So there's pictures of what she was and what she is now in her prison greens. Wow. Yeah. So she's cross-eyed? A little, yeah. But she doesn't need to wear the glasses anymore. Oh, and that's the mama. Yeah, that's the mama. Ah. Oh, and that's him. Yeah. Golly. If you just Google Gypsy Rose Blanchard, you can find everything Jacob's looking at right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she, it's just Google image, but oh my God, the side by side of her now compared to her in her in Disney her shaved head wig. Pretending to be a little with a tiara. Yeah. It's weird. Wow. Okay. So what did you say the um the Patricia Arquette thing is? So Patricia Arquette played Dee Dee uh-huh. in there's a, a mini series on HBO called The Act. Uh-huh. which is just about this whole thing. And um, the girl who played Gypsy is amazing and Patricia Arquette plays Dee Dee and she's amazing. They both got nominated for all the awards. Um, so that's basically where it's at. She'll get out of prison in four years. She's engaged. Um, her dad said he's going to take care of her, get her the psychological help she needs. Poor Nicholas Godejohn's in there forever. I still don't know how I feel about him. I think... I mean, he was certainly manipulated, but also he was a bit of a violent perv. So, mm-hmm. um, but what I wanted to end on is that while we're talking about this, everybody kind of forgets, well, like, Didi died, man. Like, what happened? Like, Didi's dead in all of this. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of looked up, well, what happened to her? And it turns out everybody hated Didi. Like, Didi was awful to everyone. Um, she has a family. She has a dad um, and some siblings, her dad is married to a new woman because it's suspected that Dee Dee actually poisoned her mother and killed her um, <laughs> in order to steal a bunch of money from her. Um, she had always stolen from the family, like rorted the family, screwed them all over to the point where they none of them wanted any contact with her. So mm-hmm. um, they haven't seen her in years and years. And after she died, nobody came forward to have a funeral or pay for a funeral or anything. So she was cremated by, I guess, the state does it. Mm. Um, Her ashes were put into a cardboard box. They were given to her father and her father's wife and they flushed them down the toilet. And that was the end of Dee Dee Blanchard. (laughs) Couldn't happen to a nicer person. So, I mean, it's just... That's that story. <laughs> wow. Welcome to 2020. Oh. Okay, I'm so in to watch this. Oh my god, okay. And so learn more yes. About it. We just gave you I just gave you just the gist of Dee Dee and Gypsy Rose Blanchard, but if you want more detail, you got to watch um the documentary is amazing. It's called Mummy Dead and Dearest. Uh-huh. Um and then the mini series based on it is called The Act. Uh-huh. And they are both so good. Uh-huh. Like, 
it is nuts. And also if you just Google it, you can go down so many rabbit holes because she's a bit of a tabloid fixture now, even right. from prison. So there's so many stories about her. Did and this just become so big because of the doco and the it was Well, it was a big story before the doco because uh-huh. it was such a crazy story. But, um, yeah, the doco is what really blew it up. Okay. And then the miniseries too and then, like, all her engagements and her boyfriends in prison and, yeah. Uh-huh. I will put money down. Someone's going to turn this into a musical. Oh, heaven. It's got so many of the necessary ingredients. And I've already proven I can play Gypsy. And I can't. I can play <laughs> Gypsy. <laughs> Singing on stage. <laughs> Here, you do Dee Dee. <laughs> go. Hang on. Let's harmonise. You go and then I'll come in. What would Dee Dee say? I don't know. Just sing what you think she would sing. Eat your dinner. I through your eat tube. my dinner through <laughs> tube. Oh, my God. We're terrible. <laughs> okay. Look, a woman died, but it sounds like she was awful, so... Some minor she jokes are allowed. <laughs> <laughs> when Rosie's back, we really need to get back to work on writing that musical. Okay, Gypsy Rose Blanchard today. I tried to find as much information about her as I could and it ended up being a bit more complicated than I'd expected. I found myself diving into some really obsessive Facebook groups and listening to podcasts made by childhood friends of Dee Dee and a lot of what's out there is opinion and speculation and a lot of gossip and infighting but I did find some facts and the good news is as Rosie said it seems Gypsy has continued to thrive in many ways while she's been in prison. Although apparently she did briefly get addicted to some illicit drugs back in 2017, but she's made a full recovery from that. She's made friendships. She's the godmother to her cellmate's daughter. And the really good news is she's almost finished her GED, which is like the equivalent of a high school diploma. That is pretty excellent considering that she hadn't been properly schooled from the second grade onwards. And she's writing a book about her experiences. She wants to tell her story in her own words, in her own way. She's told the media that she's really focusing on not only her own personal growth and healing, but um, preparing to become an advocate for survivors of child abuse. She's completed a few training courses and she's even a facilitator for a program called Impact of Crime on Victims for her fellow inmates, which she's finding really fulfilling. There's a quote from her, which I will not do in her voice. I'll leave that to Rosie. Spreading awareness by educating others on how to combat child abuse has become my personal passion. And by sharing my own life story as a survivor of abuse, I am able to give those who are too afraid to speak a strong voice. So that's pretty admirable. Her first parole hearing is coming up in a couple of months and it's looking like she will be released in 2023, if not sooner. When she is out, the plan is for her to move in with her dad and her stepmom and that'll be the first time that she's ever lived as a free person. And she says she's really excited to connect with her family that she was kept away from for her whole life and she's really looking forward to building relationships with them. But a bunch of stuff that 
I read indicated that family members and family friends who are in contact with her are pretty concerned over the fact that Gypsy still hasn't officially been evaluated or diagnosed with any mental health issues. And she's turned down a lot of counselling that the prison has offered to her because she doesn't feel that she needs any help. And for that reason, a group of her family and friends are planning to attend the parole hearing so that they can call for her to be placed in a mental health facility for evaluation and treatment when she's released, rather than just sending her out into the wild. And they're requesting that for her own good. There are some people who've spoken about the fact that they think she could potentially be dangerous. I think that's probably a little bit overblown. I think the people who are more likely to be successful are the ones who are showing concern over how Gypsy's actually going to be able to look after herself. They're concerned that she's going to end up back in prison because she's only ever known what her mother showed her when it comes to how to live in the outside world. They're scared that she'll end up scamming and stealing just like her mama did. And if she doesn't get the proper interventions and therapy and support, she'll end up back in jail. And it's absolutely possible, especially when you consider that there have already been a number of scams where people who have claimed to be Gypsy's friends and family start up GoFundMe-type donation drives on Gypsy's behalf and then they just pocket the cash for themselves. Gypsy could potentially get swept up by someone who wants to use her fame to get rich and get caught up in some sort of scam. But I don't know if mental health treatment is going to be what would protect her from that. But speaking of dodgy scammers, that brings us to talking about some of the men in Gypsy's life. She's had a lot of admirers reach out to her as pen pals. That's how she ended up engaged to that guy called Ken. Um, They did break up a couple of months before their wedding forever. And since then, she's kept dating a string of her supporters. As of July this year, she's up to her fourth longish term relationship with a pen pal slash fan slash supporter. He's 13 years older than Gypsy, which is fine. Brittany's 13 years older than her fiance and Rosie's 13 years older than Caleb. But age difference aside, apparently he's a really shifty piece of work. If you believe the family friends who've been in contact with him, they say he's a fame whore, he's a parasite, and he's going to take advantage of Gypsy. So they're very concerned that she's just going to marry this guy or another guy who comes along and asks and whoever it is that she links herself to might have the wrong motivations. And they're very, very vocal about these fears, but honestly, that's where it all just dissolves into gossip and rumors and fighting. So I'm just going to leave that there. And I'll tell you about Nicholas Godijon and what he's up to. So after going through all of the appeals processes possible, his last option was to seek post-conviction relief to overturn his sentence. So he began that process earlier this year. He's claimed from the beginning and continues to claim that Gypsy was the mastermind. She planned everything. She manipulated him into becoming a hitman. He was blinded by love and he was brainwashed by this daughter who learned from her mother how to manipulate people. So that process for post-conviction relief is ongoing. It's pretty unlikely that his sentence is going to change, but if it does, we'll let you know. Lastly, the Blanchards were not very happy when they watched the act. 
they were really angry at some of the creative liberties that the creators of the TV show took. They called it unethical and irresponsible and they felt that it should have garnered more sympathy for Gypsy than it did. Then they announced that they were going to make their own series. Gypsy's stepmom and Gypsy herself and some of the family friends are planning to make a more authentic, according to them, dramatized version of the story. They're calling it by proxy. It's still in pre-production. I don't really see it getting off the ground, partly because the project is being criticized for trying to make money off the back of Gypsy's crime. Fair point, but I don't really think that's likely to be what stands in their way. I think it's maybe more likely that their lack of experience and lack of connections might stall them, which is exactly the same obstacle that Rosie and I are going to face when we try to sell our musical adaptation of the saga. But if it is ever made, I'm certain Rosie will watch it and then she'll tell me and us whether or not we should bother. Okay, so that's it for the update that's it for this show. I think the moral of this episode from Brittany to Gypsy to Rosie and all of their experiences in the medical system is that there needs to be an overhaul of just about every institution in America and in Australia. So if someone could get onto that this week, that'd be great. If you need a palate cleanser after all of that and just knowing everything that's going on in the world right now, I really have to recommend Futurama. I've been watching a few episodes of this every night to have a little giggle. I'm amazed at how well that show has held up and it is still so funny so many years on. So give that a try. Also, if you want a really big belly laugh, do yourself a favor, Google taxidermy fails and check out some of the most unimaginably awful stuffed animals. That's a hot tip from one of our gistners and it is very effective. I have been using that pretty frequently myself. Get in touch with us via our email, justthegistpodcast at gmail.com or through Instagram, justthegistpodcast, at justthegistpodcast. I'm at Jacob William Stanley and Rosie is at Rosie Waterland. Thank you, as always, for listening. Have a great weekend. We love you. Um, I'll be back next week. So till then, moi. Listener.